So this is part one of, and now you know, featuring Jim Fielder. If you've never heard of Jim Fielder, uh, what an incredible, incredible story he's got. And Jim started out in high school, as you'll hear in just a minute during the interview. But then he uh, got his big break, started playing with a couple of different groups, and then went to Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. If you've never heard of Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, take a gander and uh, Google that or just check that out to see their music. And then from there, he went to Buffalo Springfield, played with Buffalo Springfield for a little while, and then from there formed Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Without further ado, here's my interview with Jim Fielder, and now you know. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am with uh, Jim Fielder. Jim, tell me your background. Tell me your story. Well, yeah, why don't we uh, start at the beginning here, because I had had a, a, quite a slam-bang uh, uh, start to my career. Yeah. <laughs> I started uh, playing uh, guitar seriously uh, in high school, and uh, this was uh, in the in the mid '60s uh, in um, uh, Orange County, California. Uh, and the the dominant uh, form of pop music in that time and place was surf music. And uh, so I, I got got a few friends of mine who also played, uh, and we started a, a surf band, which was kind of an interesting uh, um, venue at, at that time because surf music was mainly instrumental. I know most people are, are thinking of Jan and Dean and, and uh, uh, um Beach Boys, the, maybe the Beach Boys, right, right? That had had vocals, but mm-hmm. most of it um, was instrumental. The uh, our our particular god there in Orange County was Dick Dale, and he had a band called Dick Dale and the Deltones, and they played regularly at a um, pretty good sized uh, uh, auditorium uh, called Harmony Park in Anaheim and uh, we went to we would go to see them and uh, they they would have all the all the 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 latest and greatest fender gear sure <laughs> and uh, were, were there other to pause you for a second uh-huh. in the 60s what was the the prominent gear I mean other than fender what was you know what else was out there well, let's see. Uh, of course, uh, Gibson. I right. Mean, they, they, Gibson started making solid body electric guitars. Right. And uh, so they, you'd, you'd see them a lot. Um, let's okay. see. Uh, um, I'm trying to uh, jog my memory here. Uh, so the main ones are Gibson and Fender. I mean, yeah. And, yeah. and that's pretty much what you went with. Right, and particularly Fender's amplifiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, they came out uh, during this period of time with the dual Showman amplifier, right? Which is uh, uh, due to to us, it was that was a monster, right? <laughs> to hear that uh, that amp at, at Harmony Park, that was that was really a killer. Uh, and the first, interestingly enough, the the first piece of Fender audio gear that I bought. 
was a uh, a reverb box. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> and wow. Uh, that. That was uh, uh, kind of an es- essential uh, part of any any surf band's uh, backline mm-hmm. because you, you could kick it and it would make the sound of the surf. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Wow! So, <laughs> and um, at, at that time, I was I was playing guitar and I had a it was uh, the the uh, Jaguar. Mm-hmm. guitar which is okay. the top of the top of the line uh uh solid body guitar at that time and uh it was stuck with fender for quite a while interestingly enough when uh when blood sweat and tears started uh we were with columbia records mm-hmm. and and uh, cbs at that time had just bought up fender oh wow and so we, we we as part of our uh, uh advance from the record company we could have any fender gear we wanted and wow and that's i got got myself a, a jazz bass and uh uh one of their amps and uh, a couple of couple of other things <laughs> wow take advantage of it yeah that's right it was a, i was a, i was a fender guy then then but anyway uh back in back in anaheim now uh so started with the surf band and then in my senior year of high school uh a a young fella named tim buckley came uh joined uh school with us and uh he was at that time just doing primarily uh, folk music and uh but his voice was just amazing and so uh i got together with him and and we formed a band and he started writing songs and uh uh, when we had a a pretty good collection of his songs we went and made a a uh, reel-to-reel tape uh demo had a had a little uh, I believe it was a, a an organ showroom in in the mall there in in Anaheim and he had put together a, a little recording studio in the uh, uh, organ uh, showroom uh, huh. so we had uh, we had that and at the time I was also teaching guitar at a local music studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day, this uh, this uh, uh, wild Cherokee Indian came in and said, "I'm going to teach drums for you." <laughs> <laughs> and that was how I met Jimmy Carl Black. <laughs> so, so he 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 already knew that you were going to like what he had to offer. Right, right. Wow. Of course. Uh, so anyway, and and then. Uh, and we got to know each other pretty well and and he said you know uh, jimmy would i'm i'm in a band called uh, the the mothers of invention uh that that's led by the this uh, wild guy frank zappa we're playing at a um, club up on the sunset strip why don't why don't you come up and uh, meet our manager and the guys in the band and so Timmy and I did that. We went went up to Hollywood uh, and saw them. And um, their manager was a fellow named Herb Cohen, mm-hmm. managed uh, actually mostly mostly folk music uh, acts from New York. Oh and wow! Brought, brought them out to L.A. Uh, 
And he and his uh, brother, who was a, uh, a lawyer, they had a music publishing company. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he he was he was one of the uh, the frontline guys who realized that they, uh, that a lot of the the financial success of music at that point was going to depend on good original songs. Mm-hmm. Bob Dylan had kind of kicked the door open on that one, right? Uh, uh, you know, after after his things came out, it, um, everyone realized that that uh, you know good good original songs was the way to go. Right. So uh, we told him about the demo we'd put together, and he had Timmy and I come over to his apartment, and he had this reel-to-reel uh, uh, tape player, of course, <laughs> standard standard gear at the sure. time. No uh, CDs for those for those well, uh, the, in the younger generation who's uh, not familiar with reel to reel. That's pre cassette tape. It's actually larger than cassette tapes, and take away all the plastic, and you have reel to reel. Right. <laughs> so um, and everyone everyone had uh, 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 you know wired telephones. Mm-hmm. The uh, the for- portable telephone hadn't been invented yet, right? So uh, we were we were pretty much up up to par. I, I always always thought that that one of the m- the most important inventions of that period of time was the answering machine. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't I can't even imagine. Well, before the answering machine, I don't even know how that would work. On I guess at that time was more of the party lines. Right, right, exactly. Wow. So anyway, uh, Herb's listening to to the demo, and while he's listening to the demo, he picks up the phone and and um, makes a call uh, to Jack Holtzman mm-hmm. of Electra Records in New York, and says, "Jack, I've I've got a kid here that uh, uh, you, you should you should know about," and. Uh, that's that's what led to to making Timmy's first album in L.A. And I was I was on that uh, album. Uh, Timmy uh, uh, had his his lead guitar player on it and a drummer uh, by the name of Billy Mundy. Mm hmm was on that and uh that he he and i struck up a great friendship and played together on a lot of different things there in in la and uh um that's that's what led to to my joining the mothers because he was he was also the drummer along with jimmy carl black uh in that band so and, uh, so you're going from you're going from from surf music to uh, folk, to folk music right and, and now you're you're going to transition into whatever kind of music you want to call Frank Zappa <laughs> right <laughs> wow yeah that's a good good way to put it wow uh, but uh yeah that was and and the reason i got that gig was it was that uh, uh frank had had always had a lead guitar player he had some some great lead guitar players come mm-hmm. through that band 
but he decided that he could play the lead as as well as anyone else and he <laughs> and he could plus he would have more of an of an of an instinctive um idea of, of what to play since since he had written most of the tunes mm-hmm. uh so he s- suddenly needed a rhythm guitar player and that's what he hired me to do and and uh, bought me a um, uh fender uh, uh solid body 12 string right and that's the instrument that i played played rhythm on wow with the mothers and uh they were just really really starting to to get uh, to get known mm-hmm. um one of the first things i did with them was was their uh, uh their second album called absolutely free so i'm on i'm on that album and then they uh uh got a booking in in new york at a uh uh, a place called the Balloon Farm in the in the East Village. Oh wow! Which, which was uh, owned, uh, gosh, a uh, great great artist at that time. Um, so, what was the music? That, I mean, is it like, um, for lack of a better way of of describing? I mean, like today you've got East Coast music versus West Coast music. So. Right. Was there really any kind of? It was it was pretty much all just one, one celebration of music. Yeah, was, was it not? A, a, a lot of the music that was going on in New York at the time, besides folk music, you know, right? That was, and that was very big there, right? Uh, um, was uh, you you might you might call it beatnik music? Okay, okay. Uh, uh, the uh, had groups like the Fugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are really really coming out with some incredibly original material some a lot of it was pretty hard to listen to but they had an audience right and that's all it takes you know that's right and and then you're you're talking about you're not talking about today's satellite radio with with hd quality music you're talking about AM, a lot of it transistor radios. Right, right. Wow. The FMs, the FM stations were were starting to get big at that time, and they mm-hmm. would they would play a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the left wing stuff that that we were doing. Right. Then, so um, that would that was uh, that was a pretty important uh, uh, cog in the wheel. FM stations, but anyway, um, that's what got me to New York for the first time we went we went there uh in the fall to to do what originally was going to be like a one one week stand Mm -hmm. up through uh thanksgiving of that year and we went over so well that we got extended to new year's okay and so i got i got to 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 live uh all expenses paid in new york wow uh, for, for like six, seven, eight weeks. And that's uh, still with the mothers, right? That's still with the mothers. Okay. And one interesting that thing that happened during that gig was was because they, they shared management, um, mm-hmm. Herb Cohen uh, also managed uh, Tim Buckley. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, Tim was our opening act, good part of that gig. So I played bass with Tim 
and then guitar with the mothers. So I was uh, uh, had a pretty pretty busy. Uh, we we do a couple of shows a night, so uh, I, I uh, put in put in the hours pretty quickly on, on that. And you gig. were you were ready for a break <laughs> afterwards. Right. Wow. But I just I just love New York. For one thing, at that time, the uh, the drinking age in New York was eighteen. Oh my! So, so yeah, I got to got to have my uh, post gig beer okay. <laughs> at the at the tender age of eighteen. Well, there you go. <laughs> so so, so had I, you graduated? You you graduated high school then. Right. Right. Okay. Right. Gotcha. I graduated high school. Um, uh, I tried college for a semester and it just just didn't fit and i was you know i was getting too busy uh with music to to really stick with that so i never never did put in uh my college okay years so what so, happened with the mothers i mean what, what 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 caused you to leave the mothers well came back to came back to la and uh got a call from from stephen stills and said, uh, um, Jimmy, uh, I, I know them. We'd ha- we had some uh, common uh, people man- who managed them, and there were people who, who knew me. Mm-hmm. And so S- Steve said, uh, Jimmy, our, our bass player's been busted and deported to Canada. <laughs> uh, we, we need a bass player yesterday. So... Um, that's and you know and I, I really wanted to play bass. I love I love playing with Frank and the stuff we were doing and, and what I was learning about music. But I still you know I really wanted to play bass. Right. So I I took the offer, went over to uh, Buffalo Springfield, mm-hmm. and at the, at the time their their tune for what it's worth was a, a big hit. Right. So, they were getting some pretty good gigs at the time. I remember one one day we had this gig where we we played on a, a multi uh, artist show at the Hollywood Bowl. We opened the show on on that one and then uh, got uh, ran ran out to Van Nuys Airport and got on Frank Sinatra's Learjet to fly up to San Francisco to play that night. How'd that go? That went great. Um, so you that, were with Springfield for a, uh, for a, what, a couple of, couple of years? No, just for a few months, interestingly enough. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd kind of living expenses had, had gone up because I could afford it. So I had a, a real nice house up in, uh, uh, Laurel Canyon mm-hmm. and, um, we were we were supposed to be going to Denver to play this gig, and like the day before we we were to leave, I hadn't heard any anything about uh, you know travel arrangements. So I I called up Stephen and said, Steve, well, um, what's the what's the flight uh, to Denver? You know when are we, when are we leaving? Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, Well, listen, Jimmy, uh, here's the thing, uh, Bruce has has snuck back into the country and uh so we're giving we're giving the the gig back to him so thanks uh thanks for everything and we'll see you later (laughs) (laughs) so that was that was the end of my uh my time with with buffalo springfield so i'm sitting in this this you know nice house that i can no longer afford Mm mm-hmm 
and I'm out on I'm out on my veranda having my morning coffee, you know, trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And right. I look next door. My next door neighbor uh, was uh, a guy who was known as, as Harpo, uh, lead guitarist for Paul Revere and the Raiders. Okay, and and uh, he's having his coffee with with uh, with uh, another guy on his friend, and I look over there. And I said, that's Al Cooper. I'd known Al uh, when Al was was still with uh, with the Blues Project, and uh, we so we'd crossed paths a couple of times at the Fillmore. So I I knew him by mm-hmm. sight. Al, <laughs> he looked up at me and said, "Jimmy, hey, come on down here. I've got an idea. I want to run by you." <laughs> so I did that. Went over there, and he had the whole. Um, uh, framework of blood, sweat, and tears laid out. You know the type of f- songs he wanted to do, the instrumentation with the horn section, and everything. And uh, he he already had Bobby Columbi in in New York waiting to play drums on it, and uh, Freddie Lipsius, the sax player, who would who would help Al write the arrangements for the horn section mm-hmm. so it was it was ready to go so i i sold my uh, 57 chevy bought a plane ticket to new york and and was off and um never looked back <laughs> so so about what year was that uh that was that was in um it's uh let's see 60 right that's 67 summer of 67 okay that's when I moved to New York, and uh, we got that band together in just a few months. As a matter of fact, we had our we had our um, f- uh, first first uh, show. It was in a, a, a little uh, uh, very popular uh, uh, nightclub in in New York. Okay, so uh, it was your debut. Our much. debut gig was on Thanksgiving of that oh, year. Wow. So we, we got the whole thing together in like four months. Wow. Yeah. And then from there, it just took off. Everybody liked the That's sound. That's right. That's right. Uh, Al had already uh, sold Clive Davis at Columbia Records uh, on signing the band before, <laughs> before the band was even together. Wow. Just, just on the idea. And Clive loved it. And so we, uh, you know, as soon as we were ready, we went went into the studio and did the first album, mm-hmm. John Simon producing. Um, and that album album came out and, and started getting airplay right away. So you're uh, doing a lot more gigs now, and and right, okay. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of lot of traveling and uh, um, and things were uh, things were re- really good with Al. But um, within the band, there there was a, a kind of a a, a movement mm-hmm. uh, that wanted a a singer with a more powerful voice, and also wanted more of the um, more of, of the artistic uh, decisions to be made uh, as a, um, uh, a, a democratically. You know, mm-hmm. involving all all the guys in the band. Al Al had been the sole. He he picked all the tunes. You know, he d- d- decided what we were going to do, and it was it was working out pretty pretty good. Mm-hmm. But there was an enough 
enough dissension within the band that Al decided to, to he would he would leave and he figured the band would fall apart. Uh, but we went we went to Clive Davis on mass. Uh, explained the situation and said, we, we can keep this band together and we will get a singer. Mm-hmm. And, and Clive said, okay, I'll stick with you. If, if you can, if you can pull it off, you know, you can go in and, and do your next album. Oh, wow. So a lot, a lot to be done. Songs had to be uh, chosen and, mm-hmm. and arranged and we had to find a singer. So we'd heard this, this guy, this big, powerful singer from Toronto, We'd heard him at, at that same uh, little nightclub where, where we debuted. Um, he would he would come down and just do basically an an, an R and B set with the uh, um, rhythm section he'd brought with him from Toronto. Mm-hmm. Said why don't why don't we uh, let let's ask that guy and uh, that of course was David Clayton Thomas right. And uh, he had heard the first album, and so he he jumped on it right away. He and, knew of the uh, potential that was there. Right, right. Okay. Uh, so it it didn't take long at all to to get uh, the the band with with David singing to the point where we could actually go in and and do a um, a uh, an album. Um, and so that's uh, that that took up uh, a lot of the rest the rest of that year. Okay. Uh, 67. So he was with you and we're going to jump ahead just a little bit. What right. what got you what what got you to what got you to Woodstock? I mean, was that a production or did y'all just want to go play that uh, festival? What what got you there? Well, the the people that were putting it together um uh, uh, at that time, we you know, we had uh, that album, the second album had done so well, and, and uh, uh, Spinning Wheel was a big mm-hmm. hit. So they wanted us for for their closing night, along with Jimi Hendrix and uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, um, and um, a few other people. We were we were going to be the the headliners. So you just heard part one of the interview I had with Jim Fielder. Part two will feature Jim Fielder's time from Blood, Sweat and Tears playing at Woodstock to his career with Neil Sedaka. You don't want to miss that. But until then, and now you know. (laughs) 